Hey there. Welcome to the first episode of the third season of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie. And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. On today's episode, we're bringing on the clinician scientist, Dr. Thomas Carmichael, to learn more about stem cells. In a world where medicine, biotech, and research are developing faster than ever before, stem cells have long been a promising tool for the future of human health. Why? Keep listening to find out. Let's get after it. Carmichael is a neurologist and neuroscientist in the departments of neurology and of neurobiology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Carmichael is a professor and chair of the Department of Neurology, co-director of the UCLA Broad Stem Cell Center, and co-director of the regenerative medicine theme in the David Geffen School of Medicine. He received his MD and PhD degrees from Washington University School of Medicine in 1993 and 1994 and completed a neurology residency at Washington University School of Medicine, serving as chief resident. He has been on the UCLA faculty since 2001. Dr. Carmichael's laboratory studies the molecular and cellular mechanisms of neural repair after stroke and other forms of brain injury. This research focuses on the processes of axonal sprouting and neural stem cell and progenitor responses after stroke, and on neural stem cell transplantation. Dr. Carmichael is an attending physician on the general neurology and outpatient clinical services at UCLA. Welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me. It's going to be fun to talk about science. Absolutely. And I first want to uh, address how impressive your resume and your background is. So we actually typically end with this question, but I think I want to start with it this time. Can you tell us a little bit about your path in science and what sorts of things that you encountered on the way that brought you to where you are now? It's a good question because uh, as a physician scientist, it's somewhat of a tortured and long pathway. Uh, I think the thing that really drives me on the science end of things is the opportunity to really be creative in the research lab. Clinical medicine is interesting, has a really passionate role for human suffering and, and relieving that suffering, but it is often driven by algorithms and proscribed uh, protocols and and treatment pathways. Whereas in the lab, one can be creative and really release a lot of energy to study a disease, its mechanisms and new therapies. So the physician and the scientist part of the physician scientist approach are really two different tracks. They complement in trying to understand and treat diseases. But one I see as a really creative process and the other one is is, uh, is very directed towards the protocols of patient care and treatment. As Drew and I kind of sit here, we are essentially the, the two halves of that, but split into two people. And I don't think anyone could have described that better than you just did. Um, I think yeah, that's, that, that's very much how we operate. <laughs> that was a description that I don't think I've ever heard. The way to compare and contrast the two fields and the way like a physician scientist has that very complementary approach to it is, uh, that's it's a great explanation. But getting into the science now, we would just want to start from a very broad 30,000 foot view asking, what is a stem cell and how does it differ from other cells in our body? It's a good question because it is a useful starting point. So a stem cell really is a cell that can divide to produce itself and then produces the second of the two daughters 
that could, in theory, generate any other cell or tissue type in the body. And so I think most of the scientists, when they consider a stem cell, think of it as that root cell that can give rise to any other cell type or tissue in the body. But practically speaking, it has, of course, a whole range of meanings, even in the scientific world. And so people will talk about stem cells and they'll describe a cell that may be a little more limited. And so there's a, an example of a tissue specific stem cell, which may reside in the brain or the bone marrow, which can give rise to almost all the cell types of that tissue, but couldn't generate a whole nother organism. It's not pluripotent. It's not able to form all the cells in the body. So there's a variety of meanings, but at its root, it, it's a cell that can form any other cell in the body. It's, a, it's truly stem. That makes sense. And when I hear people talk about stem cells, when we, when we kind of hear about stem cell therapy in particular, one of the appeals kind of in, in the public eye, at least, is that the variety that you get, that, that variety of outcomes that you can get from a single stem cell, that they have this sort of multi-purposeness to them where rather than serving just one function or one potential function, they have many of those potential functions. How programmable are those stem cells? What, what makes them appealing from a scientist's perspective or from a clinician's perspective? You know, do we have any control over that sort of multifunction of a stem cell? We have a great deal of control. Um, we have a great deal of control, interestingly enough, even at the front end. And so uh, the audience will probably know that the Nobel Prize was awarded for research in 2006 that showed that you could take a skin cell or a lung cell or a, a cell in the, in the blood and reprogram it to a stem cell. So we now have the ability to control even the front end, just getting the stem cell itself is, is under exquisite laboratory control. And then once you have that stem cell, you can control which direction it will go now with increasing, uh, uh, increasing amounts. So you could make it turn into a skin cell or a gut cell or cell types within those organs. In the brain, the area where I work, you can take, the set, you can take a, a stem cell and make it become very specific in terms of a certain kind of a brain cell, maybe a brain cell that's active in movement control or a brain cell that is, helps support other cells, a so-called glial cell. So you can direct these cells down many different courses and that's uh, an entirely new way of thinking even about the stem cell field in terms of therapies. We may get increasingly specific in how we seek to use stem cells, whereas even five years ago, we were thinking more of the stem cell itself or more of a stem cell that was a little more primitive and less directed towards a, a specific type. Now we've moved forward and we were very interested in directing them to even become more and more specific for possible therapies. The pace at which science evolves, I think, is really exciting. And this seems to be a field that is moving very quickly, um, at least kind of from a younger scientist perspective and from someone who doesn't work in stem cells. It seems as though I've heard more and more about it and more and more interesting work kind of coming out of this, this area of research, which is really exciting. And... I guess kind of diving a little bit into the nitty gritty of how these cells work and how we actually use them, what are the sorts of things that you can actually do to a stem cell that actually initiates that transformation? Like what, what are we actually doing to these stem cells that programs them kind of on a more biochemical or perhaps just interaction level 
what sort of stuff stimuli will transform a stem cell into a different type of cell, what sorts of things in our own bodies naturally initiate those changes. How are we actually making these things happen? Yes, those are great questions, Liv. One of the ways we do this is to use molecules that can control different sets of genes and turn them on or off. These are called transcription factors because uh, a gene is transcribed as its first step to change cell function. And so we turn on or off various transcription factors and that will change what the cell turns into. We also use tricks from how the cell communicates to neighboring cells that, that we've learned from how these cells normally exist in the body. So we might give signals that block or activate molecules that go and shuttle communication signals across in conjunction with the transcription factors. There's literally hundreds of different ways to do this and they, they read sort of like recipes. And one of the interesting things about this field that you highlighted is it's really highly collaborative. And so you can imagine how hard it is with all these different transcription factors and cell-cell signalers to hit upon the right way to deliver it. So a lab will, and they'll publish a paper or they'll communicate it at a meeting and everybody will gather around and learn from that, try it in their own lab. Um, there's there's a, a real sense of camaraderie and communication to move the field forward. That's awesome. Um, it's really cool how fast the, the science is moving. Um, and, it's, and it's nice to see that, or nice to know that there's camaraderie in the space. But for the applicability of this, I, I just, it's like fascinating to me. Is this something where if you have a stroke that say affects the speech production area of the brain, you can administer transcription factors or is there a way like a hormone or some sort of molecule that can be administered to a patient that will then cross the blood brain barrier and cause those cells or neurons involved in speech production to regrow after a stroke or maybe there's just not enough perfusion to that area and they can like reperfuse the area like can you go through like some of the mechanics of how that might work? Yeah, those are very good questions. So when, it, when something like a stroke happens, it's, you can think of it as plumbing. There's a clog in the pipe. And so everything downstream from that pipe, all the brain supplied by that pipe dies. That really happens pretty quickly in a day or so. The tissue around it is, is in some cases rebooted. Um, there are signals for the brain to become more plastic and nimble in the tissue that's around the stroke. And there's a great wave of recovery that occurs in humans in the first three months. And so my lab and others have been really interested in what happens in that tissue in three months. And can we identify the molecules that signal recovery? Because we know there's a low ceiling, it's limited. Most stroke patients don't recover all the way. So our ideas have been to try to identify the molecules that mediate the recovery that does occur and further boost them or remove the breaks. And stem cells do have a role in that. But first we looked for normal processes <clears throat> that we might control. And we found molecules that do stimulate the brain to have new connections. And so that's one avenue. Um, a second avenue is to give drugs that enhance the ability of the brain cells to fire together. 
So we know that brain cells have to coordinate their activity into groups to move an arm or to do a pirouette or to recall a poem. And in order to get those cells to fire together in groups, we've identified drugs that enhance their excitability and seem, and seem to lead to recovery. And we're actually in clinical trial for one of those drugs. Then another possibility is to change the way the brain forms a scar. We thought we had that nailed. Uh, Ramoni Cajal, who got the Nobel Prize, described that in the late 1800s and then up into the 1920s. And we thought, well, that's done. But what we've really learned is we are almost entirely wrong. And we're having to refigure how the brain forms a scar and what fibrosis means in the brain. We know it in the skin. We just thought we had it understood in the brain and we didn't. And then finally, there are ways to use stem cells, I guess the topic of this podcast. And these have been often targeted to the same tissue to use the cells immaturity, if you will, they're releasing of factors that are sort of uh, developmentally young to try to help that rebooting of brain and to get it more plastic. And there have been clinical trials to transplant stem cells or their derivatives into this tissue adjacent to the stroke itself. It is really interesting. And this is something I think about often in, in research just broadly, you know, it, it keeps building upon itself. So we kind of operate under the assumption that everything that's been done so far has been done correctly. And it's remarkable with all the new technology and even how much better imaging has gotten, for example, our ability to image such small molecules has gotten exponentially better over the last couple decades. Uh, it'll be really interesting, I think, to see how that changes different spheres and, and sectors of research as we kind of hopefully not do too many corrections, but maybe kind of extend what we already thought to be true, or maybe kind of carve out a few more details. Hopefully nothing as major as entirely reworking the, the scarring mechanism of the brain. That sounds relatively important um, to have understood correctly. So it's interesting to hear that we were so wrong. But, you know, something that I was curious to ask you myself, and I think this is a myth that I hear a lot in sort of the things that we're told that when we're younger about our bodies is that our brain does not regenerate, that we simply have the neurons we get when we're an adult. And from there on out, we've only, you know, we're only going to lose them. Is that accurate? There is limited regeneration in the brain and it's limited by time and by tissue type. And so one of the remarkable things is before age two, if a child has intractable epilepsy, seizures that can't be treated by drugs, you can remove a hemisphere of the brain and that uh, child will grow up and still make honors in eighth grade. You know, it's, it's remarkable. They'll move the side of the body contralateral to the hemisphere when they really shouldn't. So something very young in the brain allows it to respond and to really grow new connections and to robustly take over lost function. There's another drop off around age five or six and then it slowly declines into adulthood. And so there's a timed limit to what the brain can do. Um, but even after stroke, the brain does form new connections. We know this mostly in animal models, but some of the imaging studies suggest it happens in humans. It's fairly constrained, but it can occur. And it can form new populations, particularly of glial cells that may help remyelinate or may help tune synapses and tune connections. 
the evidence is emerging that in a human, it may not form a lot of new neurons. It certainly does in rodents, but this may not carry forward to humans. So it's mostly the ability to really change glial populations and connections. So if it's something that we see, like we see regeneration of glial cells in some like demyelinating diseases to, to a limited, limited extent, is there a role for stem cells in demyelinating diseases, maybe even like neurodegenerative diseases or congenital like anomalies, abnormalities that can form and affect patients? Yeah, that's a very good question, Drew. And there really seems to be. So there's a fast pace of research to look at that in a couple of different ways. One is, say, in, in, as you mentioned, in white matter diseases where glial cells have, uh, are dysfunctional, like in multiple sclerosis or in something like vascular dementia. There's a lot of research that cell transplants may not <clears throat> themselves remyelinate the whole brain, but they may stimulate some of the que normally quiescent cells or cells that are blocked to, re to recover and remyelinate. And we've done work for that in vascular dementia. Others have done this same work in what you mentioned in congenital diseases, children that might be born with a gene defect that leads to loss of myelination. And investigators have found, particularly in models of these diseases, that stem cell transplants may either replace the diseased neurons or allow the neurons to, over, I mean, glial cells, or allow the glial cells to overcome some of their deficits. And then finally, with neurodegenerative diseases, which you brought up, things like Parkinson's disease, <clears throat> the advantage there is that most of the disease early on is in a well-defined set of neurons. And so there, there are now clinical trials that are about to launch that use the latest stem cell technology where you can make the cells develop into precursors for those early cells that are lost in Parkinson's disease. We've tried this in several iterations in Parkinson's disease with transplantation, and the most advanced studies are about to lift off and use stem cells that have been differentiated into these dopamine-producing cells of the brain. So to me, something that is so remarkable about, remarkable about your work in particular is the fact that it is all focused on the brain. And it's such a complicated organ. It has such a unique function um, and so many layers of function. And there's really so much that we don't know about it. Uh, it's really interesting. We use our own brains to figure out the inner workings of our brains. It's kind of a fun thing to think about kind of when you zoom out from it all. But I'm sure that comes with a really unique set of challenges in, in the research, in the clinic, in really just even figuring out what is going on in these diseases. They are so hard to study because of where they're happening. So what are some of the challenges you've come across in your research and what are some of the limitations that you have to sort of get across and kind of overcome in this, this field of research? And what makes you optimistic that we'll be able to overcome those challenges as a field? Those are great questions. One of the things that we have to recognize is exactly what you're saying, is that we cannot really understand the true complexity of a brain circuit or that circuit's function. We can approximate it and we can reduce it to elements that we can measure and understand, but we don't have a full understanding of the behavior itself even in its richness or in the circuits that are giving rise to it. And so one of the things we recognize is we might develop drugs that enhance the, 
the brain cells ability to fire together or to form new connections. But the brain itself is better at understanding how to rewire and how to repair than any scientist at the bench. And so we have to elicit the mouse if we're studying a mouse model of stroke or the human, if we're going into a human clinical trial to engage in the activities that we're trying to repair. So for example, if we wanna rehabilitate hand control after stroke and we have a candidate stem cell therapy, it's very unlikely the therapy alone is gonna reconstruct the rich architecture of connections necessary to move the hand. We might give them those connections a, a signal that, hey, you're plastic, you could, you could do something new, but we're gonna need the patient to repetitively practice that hand movement. So those circuits are active in ways we still don't understand. And so the unique thing about a repair therapy or any therapy in the brain is that we need to use the brain's own activity in conjunction with the therapeutic. It's, we have to pair the two so that we're activating the circuits in ways you don't fully understand in, and then we're manipulating the ability of those circuits to respond to that activity. That's, that's honestly really cool. It's kind of like we know that doing these together will somehow make it work or we hope that it'll make cells more plastic again, but we don't know the actual mechanism yet. And that's like, it's really fascinating to go from like, kind of like, is empiricism the right word? Like from top down instead of like bottom up sort of way uh, of, of like treating this. And I, I think that's really cool. Yeah, we don't do that in other areas of regenerative medicine. So we don't do that in liver or heart repair. We don't have some sort of fabulously orchestrated behavioral construct that the patient has to do in order to repair the liver. Yeah, you don't really have to train your liver to work again, I would imagine. Whereas there's so much there's so much learning in the brain and, and it's remarkable that we can lose that at all you know, through injury or disease, but also regain it in different circumstances. I mean, there are people who recover from immense loss of motion uh, or of mobility, you know, after car accidents, for example, and, and suffering of, you know, a spinal injury, things like that. So the, the ability for us to regenerate is to some extent there, but it is amazing that we can use a technology and not only a technology, but a technology that really is based in from our body. It is, it's sourced from what we already kind of had within us at some point anyway, and repurpose that for medicine and the benefit of human health. I think that's really fascinating. The fact that this technology isn't really a technology in the classical sense. It's just, we're, we're really learning the inner workings of the human body and, and, and of physiology to kind of make these things work in our favor. Drew, you just came out of your uh, neuro module, didn't you? Neuro and psych. So this, this is like fresh in your brain. Yeah, it's all fresh. <laughs> so I guess I wanted to, to ask you, why do you think this technology is so necessary and so necessary, particularly in the context of the brain and of the different diseases that diseases and injuries, I guess, that occur in the brain specifically? One of the things that's, that's clear about the brain is it's evolved systems to control and limit its own ability to respond to change. And we might recognize why that's so. If you spend a whole summer learning a golf swing, the last thing you want is when you lay around in winter, if you're, if you're in, a, in a cold environment, that those circuits can somehow be plastic again. You don't wanna lose the hard-won 
motor learning that you've, you've produced. And it's the same with learning a second language or other things. The brain has to keep its representations of information stable and predictable. And when all of a sudden you have a brain lesion and you need to start to form new connections, remap uh, cognitive function, those control systems work against you. Um, the brain's ability to lock down plasticity, which is so necessary for the normal situation, works against recovery. And so that's one reason why the regenerative medicine approaches are so difficult in the brain and why we probably have to pair something that releases that, those control points with an activity therapy. There's an interesting parallel here in business philosophy. And so Nassim Tlaib uh, developed the theory of anti-fragility. And this is the idea of a system that not, that not only is uh, resistant to change, but responds or grows to it with it. So one of the things that we talk about a lot in disease is resilience and making an organ resilient or resistant to change. But that's not what anti-fragile is. Anti-fragile is something that grows with change. And Tlaib uses the example of a box you might get that says shake, you know, that's, it's not handled with care, it's actually shake because it would benefit it. And so some of the systems we're describing are anti-fragile systems. They're systems that lay there in the brain that are kept in check, but they actually feed on growth and change. And so they're useful to release um, and, and to, to help establish new connections or new patterns of activity, but they're dangerous. And they would be dangerous in the normal brain if unchecked, and they would be uh, possibly dangerous even with a the therapeutic if we didn't combine it with rehab and have the circuits that we're interested in recovering have that plasticity change. An example is the transcription factor Kreb. And so this is a common transcription factor that in all cells, but in neurons, it links changes in the activity and firing of that cell to changes in the cell's transcription of genes. And you can release Kreb or activate it after stroke. And then the brain circuits that have this enhanced Kreb literally take over the function of adjacent brain. They're anti-fragile. They respond to change with growth. And uh, that's one of the fascinating things about the brain to, to draw my long-winded explanation back to your question, Liv, that the brain is really interesting because it's evolved into a controlled environment. And we are now understanding how to release that control and what it means. I don't think I am overstating when I say my mind is blown. <laughs> Um, quite literally every time I have another iteration of learning neurology, neuroscience, you know, learned, had a couple classes undergrad, then the neurology block in med school. And now this interview, it's just like every time you learn something new and the precision with which our brains have evolved and like right to regulate themselves and built this fantastically intricate and precise organ is unbelievable. And the resilience of it, like you, like you mentioned, like you talk about resilience in disease, the resilience of our brain to adapt to different disease states is remarkable. And I, I will tell you what, my golf swing could benefit from some of that year long plasticity <laughs> big time. 
Uh, oh wait, you were uh, you were a neuroscience major. I forgot that that was the case. I uh, I was a biochemist, tried and true, still am. So I'm only tangentially kind of picking up these sorts of things. So the brain has always been something that's interested me, and I've been quite frankly very terrified of diving into because of how complex it is. So I am extraordinarily impressed to be learning from someone like you today, and um, it is also really exciting to get a chance to speak with someone who kind of has found a way to combine what drives me as a you know creative scientist at the bench and Drew, the very meticulous problem-solving thinker, and kind of found a way to meld those together in such a wonderful synergistic way. Uh, so thank you so much for being on the show. I have learned a lot as per usual. Drew, hopefully you feel the same way. Oh, absolutely. Um, we're gonna have to make sure your brain's okay after all that mind-blowing that happened earlier today, but thank you so much, Dr. Carmichael. Uh, you bet. Thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion. Well, well, well. What an interview. That's it. What an interview. <laughs> that's. I think that's the uh, the now coined outro line that you have for our interviews. Because I'm just blown away every time. I love learning from... Physicians, scientists, physician scientists. Yeah, and it's been a while. We've been uh, we've been pretty busy since our last episode. A couple small life things have happened here and there. We started our second year of school. We you joined a lab. Yeah, I joined a lab. We, oh, we we uh, moved apartments. Tony um, turned one. We got engaged. <laughs> yeah, that was you know a pretty pretty big pretty big deal. Some may say. Some may say. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd call it a pretty big deal. Yeah, somewhere in the, what, 15 to 20 range? Yeah, definitely 15 to 20 range. (laughs) Well, it is really good to be back and doing some more science chit-chats and podcasts and interviews. And, of course, the, uh, the pod also comes with its fun little tidbits and surprises at the end. So we had to bring those back, too. So in the true spirit of a return to the podcast... I wanted to end this episode with two truths and a lie. So what this means is I will give Drew three facts, or almost facts, because one of them is not quite correct, and it's Drew's job to figure out which of them is not accurate. Are you ready? Yep. All right, number one. There is enough DNA in the average person's body to stretch to the sun and back. Facts. Number two. Stomach acid is strong enough to dissolve stainless steel. Hmm... And three, the average human body carries 10 times more bacterial cells than human cells. Do, 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 All right, Drew, what's your answer? One to me seems, seems legit. Not gonna lie. There's a ton of DNA in our bodies. Wouldn't doubt that that's the case. Two... Stomach acid, the pH is like two. Like it, it has to be able to dissolve stainless steel. I wouldn't see why it, why it wouldn't. But mm, you're giving me a look. I don't know anymore. I, I think the answer here is three, and I think it's because it is an underestimate. I believe that the human body carries, I'm gonna say like a hundred to a thousand times more bacterial cells than human cells. All right, honestly, I like your logic here. And I think the truth is actually going to blow your mind because number three is correct. We do have 10 times more bacterial cells than human cells. Shucks. Number one is actually the lie. The average person's body has enough DNA to stretch to Pluto and back 17 times. (laughs) Wow. Isn't that wild? 
I honestly had a really hard time wrapping my head around that. That blows my mind. So uh, my source is the internet. So we'll take it with a little bit of grain of salt. But but it's an absurd amount of genetic material. If you were to stretch it, that's apparently how far it would go. Wow. Isn't that wild? That is. That's crazy. Yeah. That honestly, it surprised me. And I, I feel like I've, I've heard different iterations of that truth. And I think I think one cell has two meters of DNA or 200 meters. Even one single cell carries so much genetic material if you stretch it all out. It, it really is hard to wrap your head around it because it's so well condensed in there. So I'm not actually short. I'm just condensed. Yeah, you're just That's condensed. what you're telling me. <laughs> um, I could use a, the organization level of the genome would be really useful for apartment living. That sort of That sort of... Uh, maximization of space usage yeah it it would be useful no doubt no doubt uh but nonetheless i do want to touch on something that was brought up during this interview that not everyone may be familiar with and that's the glial cells that dr carmichael mentioned the myelination um so if you you know, are sitting and f- trying to figure out what this is. The way our nervous systems are organized is there's a difference between the neurons and the cells in the brain and spinal cord and the nerves that go to all your extremities. And they're broadly differentiated into neurons and then supportive cells. And like he mentioned, glial cells. So that's like in the brain, there's supportive cells called glial cells and what they do is help with the transfer of information from one neuron to the other it helps make everything move really quickly um that's why our reflexes are are so fast is because those glial cells are there and the same thing in the periphery in the extremities of your body those cells kind of wrap around the neurons and help with that transfer of information and signaling from one neuron to the next so just to give you guys a little background, that is what those are. Great. I feel like we needed to title that segment, um, School with Drew. Drew, Drew. Drew School? I feel like it, it sounds better in my head than it does out loud, but... The School of Drew? The School of Drew. I like that. I like that. Schoolhouse uh, of Drew. It's like a twist on Justin Bieber's clothing brand. Schoolhouse of Drew. Drew House Rock. Drew House... <laughs> All right, I'm getting off topic. All right. Well, thank you for filling us in. Um, as the resident neuro major between the two of us, we appreciate it, and I appreciate it. So I guess that means that that is all for this week's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and of course our science shenanigans. And if you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society. We release a new show on the first Monday of every month. So episode two is coming your way on December 6th. Peace, love.